Hey, hey, everybody. This is Volts for February 14th, 2024, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. The Democrats' new consensus bill would supercharge transmission. I'm your host, David Roberts. When permitting reform came up toward the end of the last session of Congress, it was a bit of a dumpster fire. Senator Joe Manchin's permitting compromise, which would have boosted clean energy and fossil fuel projects alike, sparked intense opposition among both progressives and Republican senators and ended up dying an unceremonious death. The Democrats realized that they were not prepared for the permitting discussion last time around. So this past year, Representatives Sean Caston and Mike Levin set out to pull together the DIM coalition around a common set of positions. The result is the Clean Electricity and Transmission Acceleration Act, or CETA. CETA would implement a number of changes that clean energy reformers have long sought It would empower the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, to force utilities to do more and better interregional transmission planning, to take carbon into account when setting rates, to implement performance-based rate making, and to consider the use of grid-enhancing technologies. FERC would also have ultimate backstop permitting authority over interregional transmission lines the way it currently does on natural gas pipelines. So far, so good. But the bill also includes several provisions meant to increase community engagement, which has elicited considerable angst among the left's build, build, build faction, which thinks there are already too many ways for local groups to stymie transmission. Yet those provisions are what have attracted support from environmental justice groups. To talk through all of this, I went to the source, Kasten and Levin, two of Congress's most vigorous and outspoken champions of clean energy. We talked about the legislative context, the provisions of the bill, the right way to think about community engagement, and future prospects for any of this becoming law. All right, then, uh, with no further ado, Representatives Sean Kasten and Mike Levin, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Before we jump into the details of the bill, the Clean Electricity and Transmission Acceleration Act, or CETA, where I want to start is, and I really do not intend this to be derogatory or deflationary at all, but just sort of a matter of factual context, which is it's not obvious when this bill could actually pass <laughs> and become law. Um, you know, a bill that is supporting transmission, making transmission easier, but not making fossil fuels easier is just going to be a non-starter with Republicans. They've got the House now. Even if Dems get both houses of Congress in the 2024 elections, which is somewhat unlikely, but even if that happened, you'd still need to overcome the filibuster. You can't put this in a reconciliation bill. It's got a bunch of changes to rules and regulations in it. So the filibuster would have to go away. You know, a whole series of unlikely events would have to happen (laughs) for this to actually become law. So, which is just to say, this is, for the most part, a messaging bill, a flag in the sand saying, here's where we are. So I'm curious, and I'll start with you, Representative Levin, just, I'd like to hear a little bit about what is the purpose here and, and how big of, you know, how much of it is just kind of trying to pull the coalition together and sort of getting everybody on record? What's the sort of what's the thinking behind doing this? Well, Dave, are you trying to imply that Congress is uh, somewhat dysfunctional at the moment? Heaven that, forfend. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if the Republicans in the House supported the bill, they yeah. probably still couldn't pass it. So, you know. Well, let me say a couple things. One is that I've been in Congress for five years now, and Sean and I were both elected in 2018. And I think to my knowledge, he and I were the first to run on a platform of advocacy for clean energy. 
actually on the uh, ballot title, you know, you have a, a title and, and mine was clean energy advocate. And I know mm. Sean talked a lot about his work in the clean energy sector. And we ran and won on uh, climate and energy and environmental policy. Uh, really, uh, a lot of folks here in this town told us not to do that, or at least they told mm -hmm. me not to do that. And uh, what I've learned is that, you know, politics and, and Congress particularly is all about the art of the possible, the art of compromise and being prepared. And when preparation and opportunity intersect, uh, you can actually get big things to happen. So when I first got here, and, and I think the same is true for Sean, we were told that uh, we weren't going to get a major climate bill, that it just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't in the cards. And we uh, both sat on the Select Committee for Climate. Uh, we were appointed to that committee by uh, Speaker Pelosi as two of the freshmen on the committee, two of the three, the other being Joe Neguse from Colorado. And we put together this incredibly comprehensive report. So we brought together the best ideas and we were prepared for when the opportunity presented itself in the next Congress with what became the Inflation Reduction Act. But it didn't all just happen sequentially. It didn't happen as we expected or as anybody really could have predicted. But we were able to pass the most comprehensive climate bill in the history of the United States, really the history of any country. And I think the same applies to the effort around permitting reform. We know the politics are difficult. We know that there are a lot of forces with very deep pockets against us. Dave, you did a great job of highlighting uh, some of the legacy of fossil fuel advocacy in one of your recent pods. All that's true. But what's also true is that if we're prepared and opportunistic, that when that right opportunity presents itself, you never know what's possible around here. And we're not going to give up because it's so critically important that we get this done. Got it. Got it. So in a sense, this is just saying, should opportunity arise, we Democrats are united around this, basically, this set of policies. I think that's right. And it's all about how do we double the rate of transmission and invest in the renewable energy we need to meet the demand that will come from increased electrification across the country. And what we don't want is for permitting reform to become an excuse for the fossil fuel industry to make pipeline permitting easier. That's not <laughs> what we're aiming for here. Yeah. We, we've actually got to do the right thing for renewable energy to meet our goals. I, I think you have correctly diagnosed that if we limit ourselves to saying, what are the things that can be done given the structure of the Senate and the existence of the filibuster and some very goofy rules, <laughs> we, would conclude, we would conclude we shouldn't do anything, right? Campaign finance <laughs> reform is off the table. Stopping gun violence is off the table. Voting Renewing reform. The Voting Rights Act is off the table, right? And, you know, I think we should be, as lowercase d Democrats, we should be horribly embarrassed by the fact that in 2022, the Senate passed a bill to make lynching a federal crime that the president signed into law. That bill first passed the House in 1922. <laughs> it is a real structural problem that it took the Senate 100 years to say that lynching isn't a crime. But we don't have 100 years to fix the climate crisis, right? And so I think our challenge is that when we had this window in the last term, when we had the House, we had the Senate, we had the White House, we didn't have a policy-focused bill to look to. And so we defaulted to what is the thing that Senator Manchin can get through Senate ENR. And the record will show he didn't get a damn thing through. But we framed this as saying what is politically possible instead of what is scientifically necessary. And what we try to do here is say, let's get what's necessary down so that when the window's open, we've got something we can start from. And hopefully we'll get everything we ask for, but let's at least ask. <laughs> what, a, what a thought. What a thought. Uh, I love hearing the House and Senate cast accusations of dysfunction at one another because, you know, you can just, you can agree with everyone. Everyone's, yes, everyone's right. Yes. So, Representative Kasten, let's start with you here. So, the first three titles of the bill are about transmission. The bulk of the, of the bill is about transmission. So, maybe let's start at, at a somewhat general level and just say, what is broken about our about our transmission system and why is stronger federal authority like a lot of what's in the first three titles of this bill is centering authority over various elements of the transmission system in FERC in the at the federal level so what's wrong now and why is stronger federal authority the answer so here's what we knew when we 
finalized what became the Inflation Reduction Act, because remember we started with Build Back Better, was because we went through this parliamentary process in the Senate that we could only affect spending titles, we had to drop the policy provisions. And right. several of these things were actually some of our policy recommendations. What we know, that you know, the good work that Jesse Jenkins, who I think you've had on your podcast before, um, you know, the good work that he's done is that we have to build transmission at three to five times the rate we have ever built transmission in the country in order to meet the climate goals of the Inflation Reduction Act. When we talk about this is going to reduce CO2 emissions by 40%, it's true. We put enough money out there to do it. But if we're going to decarbonize by building generation where the renewable resources are, decarbonize by electrifying loads that currently don't have electric hookups, we're going to have to build wires to do that. And in any given year, the United States builds 10 to 100 times as many miles of high-pressure gas distribution line as we do have high-voltage electricity transmission. Oh, good grief. That's depressing. <laughs> A part of the reason for that is that FERC has sole backstop authority for a gas pipeline, but nobody has sole backstop authority for an electric line. So if you want to build a gas pipeline, you may object to the construction, you may support the objection, you raise your concern with a single agency and a decision's made. On an electric wire, if you get a decision you don't like at one county, well, you go to the next county on the border and you pick it again there. You pick the next <laughs> municipality, you pick the next state. And so these fights go on forever. The second reason, though, is that the curse of clean energy is that it is so bloody economic. <laughs> if you wanted to build a gas pipeline, because Dave, I know you're a big fracker, <laughs> and, and, and Mike, who is a huge LNG exporter, wanted to be the other end of that gas pipeline, you both have a shared economic interest in building that pipeline. Right. By contrast, if you wanted to build a wind turbine, and Mike is the utility in San Diego that's trying to figure out whether they are going to allow you to interconnect to their grid, that wind turbine is bringing cheap power that's going to displace more expensive power. And Mike's the guy who makes money based on what the price of power is. <sighs> and so there's this huge economic conflict of interest because the people who have the, the authority to decide what gets built and what gets connected have an economic disincentive to do things like lower congestion on the grid, lower the price of power. And so like our, our mantra in this bill has been, let's fix the profit incentives. Let's make sure that you know, everybody can participate early on in the process. And then what's left with permitting is a fairly easy problem. But you know, there's a reason why the energy industry is pushing so hard to make it easier to build gas pipelines that we can export. Because number one, well, basically, like gas is struggling to compete against all this clean energy, right? Gas exports are through the roof in the United States because we're getting energy from cheaper sources. Right. I think this is such an important point. And <laughs> Volt's listeners are probably aware I think it's important because I bang on about it incessantly <laughs> in literally every pod I record. But like if you go to a utility and say, hey, I've got I can hook up this new power line and it will reduce the cost of power in your area and it will reduce your need to build new infrastructure in your area. That is just directly counter to the utility's financial interests. It's, it, it could not be more straightforward. They don't want that to happen. I always love the line that somebody told me once in an interconnect fight that it's like having to get a man's permission to date his wife. <laughs> right, like, you understand there's a, it may be in her best interest right? but you understand why that's going to be a hard negotiation yeah and you start to think maybe his objections to this guy and this guy and this guy maybe they're not above board like you know yeah, yeah, maybe possible. there's something it's else possible. going on here yeah. okay so let's talk a little bit about then what this bill gives to FERC what it allows FERC to do Talk a little bit about kind of the new powers FERC would have from the bill. So I'm going to try to remember all of them. You'll chime in, Mike, if I've forgotten some. There's a lot. Uh, I, I, when, when I went through the summary of the bill, I was like, oh, all the things. Yeah. <laughs> you put all the things in here. We give them sole source authority, which is a big deal, so that now you can petition and they can be the, the adjudicator of, of disputes and not have 15 other adjudicators. We have a lot of provisions about cost allocation. One of the challenges when you build a wire is that the party who benefits is not always necessary, the party who bills the costs. And so provisions, it says FERC has to go through and as much as possible make sure that 
those who bear costs also share in the benefits. Yeah, let me, let me just jump in and clarify that a little bit, because this is also something we've touched on in previous pods. I think, um, I'm not sure if people have really internalized, but like if you come with a new interconnection, a new line, you have to pay for all the upgrades necessary, even though the new line would benefit everyone in the territory or other, you know, or, or the utility itself, or a bunch of different parties would benefit from the new transmission. But you as the transmission builder, all those costs are put on you. And that is, again, another insane feature of this system that it seems designed to stop it from happening. Yeah. So let's align that there's, we have a completely balkanized grid. So there's provisions about boosting inter-regional ties. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons why Texas had their outage a couple of winters ago is because the Texas grid is largely an island. And if you want proof of that, just note that El Paso had the same weather, um, has the same generation mix, and they didn't lose their power because El Paso was actually not on the Texas grid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a little fun fact. <laughs> One of the things that I think is most important here is having FERC issue performance-based rate making for regulated utilities. Because under traditional cost recovery utility rate making, a regulated utility earns a return on their capital, and in theory, operating costs are all pass-throughs. And the theory of that is that that way you can't make money by being inefficient. The flip side of that is that you can't make money by being efficient. <laughs> um, and, right. and so all of your economic interests are around, I want to build capital that can earn a return and then get my guaranteed return on that capital. So what we've done there is to direct FERC to going into those regulated utilities and saying, let's go through and give you a higher return on equity if you do things like, I don't know, shorten the interconnection queue help your state meet their RPS goals, reduce the mm -hmm. congestion on your system. So let's create a situation where the economic interests of energy producers and energy consumers are aligned. Let's make it so that you make more money by doing a better job. Exactly. A novel state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> There's a ton more, but that's off the top of my head. Mike, any big ones that I'm, that I'm forgetting there on your end? I think the only thing I'd add, Sean, is the concept of intervener compensation. Yep. We're going to get to that uh, uh, later, Mike. We're going we're to touch on that in, in the fourth section. But also, um, uh, it would create a FERC Office of Electricity Transmission, which is just a, you know, a relatively simple thing with just staffing up FERC and getting FERC uh, yeah. you know, more prepared to do all this. The, the one other thing I would ask about, Sean, is you know, a lot of what's weird and unwieldy about our electricity system is the federalism of it, which is the states have jurisdiction over their energy systems. And FERC only has jurisdiction over interstate electricity, which in just the line between what's in a state and what counts as interstate alone is fuzzy and, and weird. So how is it that you are enabling FERC, the federal agency, to, to directly you know put requirements on utilities, which are supposed to be regulated by states. How are you navigating this jurisdictional issue? Well, I have the way that I'd like to resolve it. Um, <laughs> and, and then there's the, the honest reality that like a lot of the things that drive, you know, if you as a consumer are deciding whether to put a, a you know, a solar panel on your roof or an electric vehicle in your driveway, you're going to be making that decision based on retail rates that are entirely outside of FERC jurisdiction. And that's a, that's a real problem. Right. Um, where FERC has jurisdiction is over the, these, the ISOs and RTOs, the, the multi-state but not totally federal entities who set up the rules of the market, set up these interstate rules. I think there's a rich legal history that I'll defer to other lawyers than myself, that these, these entities have essentially created something that our founders didn't envision, right? Because mm. the Tenth Amendment says all rights not expressly provided to the federal government are reserved for individuals or the states. And there are these weird multinational things. Um, you could probably argue that Reggie in New England has a similar weird multi-state issue. Yeah. But essentially, those are the places where the rules are set on interstate hooking up of the wires, sharing of resources between the regions, and the wholesale market design, which is all for jurisdictional. The, the place that I was going to say, if you really want to made me king, and this is for, <laughs> I guess, enterprising lawyers who are listening, there's a super interesting dissent in a 2000 Supreme Court case, FERC versus New York State, by a young jurist named Clarence Thomas, <laughs> who observes in his dissent that there is absolutely no physical way to guarantee that a, you know, an electron injected onto the grid stays within the boundaries of a state 
And therefore, it's not clear why all power sales should not be federally jurisdictional. Indeed. <laughs> it's perhaps the, it's, it, I don't often agree with Clarence Thomas, but when I do, it's on matters of federalism and electricity policy. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I think that's a longer conversation. We're not going to yeah. address that in a piece of legislation, but I do think it's a, if there's a smart, I don't know, charitable FERC lawyer listening to your pod, maybe, maybe uh, prepare your Supreme Court litigation strategy on that one. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to mention about FERC, uh, I feel obliged to mention this since I've done a couple of previous podcasts on it, is it also instructs FERC to force utilities to consider grid-enhancing technologies, this set of technologies that would allow more throughput from the existing grid, basically. Yeah, and by the way, these are both like technologies, like things you would put on a wire that let you put more on the wire computer algorithms to say, like, let's dynamically rate the wire that on a hot day it can carry less power than on a cold day, and so let's adjust. Also, end-use efficiency, right? It, it's insane that the cheapest form, you know, not to be all Amory Lovins on you, but the cheapest, <laughs> form of, the cheapest form of new load is usually somebody who can agree to turn their air conditioner down on a hot day, and yet that can't participate in power markets. So yes, we've got the deployment of these grid-enhancing technologies, including end-use efficiency, We've also got a provision to strengthen existing FERC Order 2222, which created markets for demand-side load participation. And a number of states, under pressure from their utilities, have opted out. And so this would basically say that states can't opt out of those programs. This is a federal uh. law. You have to comply with it. And even if your utility would much rather that your power bills were higher, um, <laughs> you, you still get to deploy things that can save you money. Yeah. Final footnote on that is included in the grid enhancing technologies portion of the bill is a mention of reconductoring, which uh, Volt's fans will recall from just a, a week or two ago, a real uh, dark horse solution, just bigger, better power lines in the place of the existing ones. Always love it when you dumb it down, David. <laughs> <laughs> reconductoring, it just trips, it trips right off the tongue. I, I can't believe it wasn't in the headline of your of your bill. Dave, we have a company right in Southern California ready to reconductor everything. So I, I, Sweet. I can give them a, a shameless plug later. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Final question about transmission. Uh, um, Sean, it's a more general question, which is, and I'll have a, a related question for you in a minute, Mike, which is by centralizing a lot more authority in the federal government, do you worry at all about what this would look like? in the hands of a Trump FERC, <laughs> in the hands of a Trump government, you know, would, would you be empowering the federal government to stop things that good states want to do? Uh, you know what I mean? Do you worry about that at all? I do have worries about a specific politician, but it's not Trump. FERC is an independent agency. FERC by statute has a five-member set of commissioners. Those commissioners have to be no more than three from one political party. And part of the reason why FERC historically has been as effective as they have is because they are largely outside of the political process. Mm -hmm. um, so even if a Trump or, you know, or someone even worse suddenly had two vacancies, this isn't like the Supreme Court where you can jam it with idiots. <laughs> Half idiots at worst. <laughs> well, yeah, like right, right now, you know, there's two vacancies and one of those vacancies, you know, Biden nominates them, but one of those has to come from Republican leadership in the Senate to say this is someone we'd vet. My bigger problem is that the head of the Senate DNR committee, who's a close friend of yours, David, the <laughs> senator from West Virginia, has effectively blocked the Biden's administration ability to staff FERC. So we are now at three FERC commissioners out of five. We don't have names on there. Glick got bunted out. And I do have a fear that existing FERC commissioners are looking over their shoulder politically at, you know, if I want this job again, do I need to be careful that I don't do something that might piss off the senator from West Virginia? And that's how you break an organization that is designed to be independent. Senator Voldemort. I think the Senate's, the Senate's slow walk on this, and frankly, the White House not being more forceful, has, I think, weakened FERC in ways across all presidencies that we need mm. we need to fix and fix that yesterday. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So that's the transmission part. And would you say, um, you know, this is sort of a temperature taking thing, but would you say like transmission was a somewhat obscure 
issue not very long ago. <laughs> and at least in my world, you know, in my world, it has become an intense <laughs> top-level preoccupation. What's your sort of temperature on the Democratic caucus overall? Has the transmission gospel reached the hearts and minds of <laughs> of the Democratic coalition sufficiently? You know, I think I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to pull this together and get the endorsement of the Progressive Caucus, the New Dems, the SEEK, and, and, you know, a lot of committee chairs, and that this has become kind of the Democratic vehicle. Right. It's also, for better or for worse, highlighted that the Republican permitting bill, this term, H.R. 2, is entirely about oil and gas and has nothing about transmission in it. <sighs> They, you know, had, had the Republicans brought forward the quote-unquote compromise bill at Manchester, they probably could have got it through because that actually had transmission and oil and gas pieced in it. Yeah. The, and so essentially it's become partisan, but I think it's more a conflict between are you advocating for the interests of energy producers or energy consumers? Because mm. if you're a producer, you want more oil and gas exports because that's how the producers are making money. And so you push for that line. If you're a consumer, you want access to cheap energy, which is increasingly you know, renewable electric. And there are Republicans, like the entire Iowa Republican delegation is sitting on a glut of wind that they would love to get into more expensive markets. They should be very logical advocates, but the leadership of the Republican Party, two of them are from Louisiana. <laughs> For now, anyway. <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. The guy they just kicked out was from Bakersfield, the oil patch in California. And so, and so the leadership of the Republican Party is very much looking out for that small minority of communities in America that depend right. on gas jobs. So it's, it's become a Republican-Democratic issue, but I think, I think the much harder debate is really, a, you know, what do you do for communities that have historically depended on fossil fuel production in this transition? And that's a fair question. You know, I think we've tried to be thoughtful about that, but that's candidly probably a, a bigger issue than we're going to address just in this bill. Right. I, I said that was the last one, but one more. And this is, if you don't think this is productive, feel free to just tell me to bug off. But do you, <laughs> what do you think about, do you think that Democrats made a mistake by not accepting the mansion permitting compromise package toward the end of, of last session? There's a lot of debate about this in my circles. I'm really not sure how serious a package that I wrote. I mean, I don't know that it had votes in the Senate, right? Like, we could talk about what it would have gotten there. You know, I was having conversations with a number of my Senate colleagues at the time that was going through that the pacing vote on that bill was never Joe Manchin. It was Bernie Sanders. Huh, yeah. Right, because you, you knew, and we've seen it this term as well, that the only way you actually get bills through is to have virtually all Democrats on board and a minority of the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start framing bills as saying, well, we're going to alienate the left of the Democratic Party with the hope that there are, you know, a dozen magical Republicans who will put bipartisanship <laughs> above party, like it, that, those, those people don't exist. And there was, a, I think there's a theory in the Senate that those exist, but <laughs> you know, like, like, look, we had H.R. 1, our campaign finance reform, get rid of gerrymandering, undo Citizens United. The Senate went through, debated that whole bill. Among the things they changed was got rid of public financing of elections for senators with the hope that that would actually get more Senate votes. And at the end of the day, they got exactly zero Republicans to sign on, which was exactly what yes. we had before they weakened the bill. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so we just weaken things and weaken things and weaken things in pursuit of this mythological dozen Republicans, and then all yeah. you're left with is weak sauce. Yep. Yeah, and you're left saying, like, well, were the Democrats to blame for not accepting this? And it's like, well, you weren't including the people who actually were committed to governance. <laughs> right. Right? right. And yes, there will be trade-offs within that group, but, you know, we, we passed a lot of stuff. The Inflation Reduction Act, right. you know, that got every, every Democrat on board from, from AOC to Joe Manchin, but it didn't get anybody else. Yeah. Senator Manchin seems to have a, a, a quasi-religious belief in that group of Republicans that are just right on the verge of crossing over just if, for one more concession, and they're like uh, Bigfoot. Like, <laughs> you get blurry snapshots, but like none of them ever show up. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Um, Representative Levin, I want to talk to you about the community engagement stuff, but yes. br briefly, let's touch on, before that, Title IV, which is about 
public land and renewables. Maybe yep. just tell us briefly, like, what's the goal there? What's the idea? Uh, what are you trying to do? Well, I think, you know, we had a pretty bold objective a number of years ago in the Natural Resources Committee. I'm proud to serve on that committee to have 25 gigawatts of new renewables on our public lands by 2025. And obviously, that's a very bold and ambitious goal. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we've, we've got to put the framework in place to make it as easy as possible for us to, to even come close to those goals. And, you know, it, it's sad that it's become so controversial to have just fair deployment of renewable energy on public lands. We, we know that we absolutely needed to reduce uh, our emissions at, at the scale that we need. And there's some of the best areas anywhere in the country uh, for renewable energy generation. So we, we've got to have balance, obviously. There's other important roles our public lands play. Uh, both the environmental role, the, the recreational. But, uh, you know, we want to make sure that our renewable development on public lands be done with what we call a smart from the start approach to uh, encourage careful planning and, and balance uh, renewable potential with conservation and with recreation. And uh, I've actually been working on a bill, a uh, bipartisan bill for a number of years in natural resources called Plurita, Public Lands Renewable Energy Development Act, to incentivize a lot of this. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I, I'm hopeful that uh, these are provisions in the bill that are not as controversial, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, also mindful that uh, we've got very powerful forces against us. You know, it, it was, uh, I think, back in December or, or January where you had uh, a podcast with folks going over some history of the influence of the fossil fuel industry on energy policy and, and uh particularly since Citizens United, just the massive amount of uh, dark money that has flowed in from the fossil fuel lobby. But uh, I think in that pod, the folks from the renewable energy side, they're in the, the third decade of existence or the fourth decade of existence as opposed to fossil where they're, they've been around much longer. And I think the, uh, the folks at that pod said that you need around seven decades in existence before you finally understand uh, the machinations of the political process. <laughs> you, you, you add, uh, well, you add Citizens United to the mix and, and it makes things tough, but we just have to keep at it. You know, I, I think the, uh, the outcome that we cannot accept is uh, to just allow the fossil fuel lobby to write permitting reform. And uh, whether it's uh, public lands, community engagement, you name it, uh, we've got to have a, a strong democratic alternative to that. Was this a weird, bad dream I had? Or at one point, I feel like the permitting deal that was on the table around the time of Build Back Better, there was a provision in there that said for every lease you offer a solar farm, you have to offer an oil and gas lease alongside it. Like they're literally were tying right. oil and gas leases to renewable energy leases. I thought that was like. I think that's in the offshore wind provisions now. As we roll out offshore wind leases, they are paced by that right now because of those rules. It's crazy. Good grief. That's just like ridiculous. Anyway, so, okay, lots more renewables on public land. That's great. So let's talk then about community engagement. So as you are uh, no doubt aware <laughs> that, that this portion of the bill caused quite a bit of agita and controversy in, in my circles. And just to frame it for listeners, so there's this looming problem that we need to build a lot of stuff between now and 2050 if we want to hit our carbon targets. We're just going to have to build, build, build at a rate that is unprecedented, I think, certainly for renewable energy and nearly without precedent, I think, almost anywhere. And that means solar and wind everywhere. It means probably some nuclear plants, geothermal, your transmission, and just all of this build, build, build. And right now, what we have is a system that has accrued over time lots and lots and lots of mechanisms whereby people can stop that building from happening. There are all these veto points, all these laws that enable people to sue and force reviews and force more reviews and more reviews. And just the threat of all that stuff has intimidated a lot of developers out of even trying. So right now, things are very slow to build and very expensive. That's true at the city level with housing. That's true at the national level with renewable energy. It's true uh, uh, almost anything, except for 
LNG export terminals. We seem to be able to just pop those up, pew, 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 like, uh, like nobody's business. But, yep. but everything else, it's very difficult to build. And so, um, you know, there's this whole sort of movement on the left of a, a, an, an abundance progressivism, a progressivism of building. And so a lot of what those people want is to sort of rethink and sweep away a lot of these mechanisms whereby people were stopping bad stuff. Like that's what all this stuff came into being. <laughs> there were mechanisms for uh, citizens trying to stop bad, uh, you know, often fossil fuel stuff happening. So, and what it looks like to those people is that the community engagement provisions of this bill move in the opposite direction. It looks like they give communities more tools to stop things. And so I think the critique that's floating around out there is you have all these transmission titles meant to accelerate transmission building. And then this community engagement title that looks like it would give people a bunch of new tools through which to stop transmission and everything else through endless sort of NEPA reviews, the National Environmental Protection Act yep. reviews, all the, uh, on and on. So maybe before we get into the specifics, just I'd like your thoughts about that general line of critique. Well, David, I will say this as a recovering environmental attorney uh, <laughs> who, who used to, you know, try to work with communities ahead of time and try to avoid lawsuits and try to, to build things that, you know, ultimately I agree with build, build, build. Uh, but we have to build the right way. We, we have to make sure that we're reducing our emissions. We have to make sure that we're actually keeping environmental justice communities in mind. And, you know, historically, those communities have really not had the chance or the expertise to even participate in the decision-making process effectively. So I think what we're trying to do here is to prevent the further entrenchment of uh, what's happened in the past with some of these communities by actually giving them a seat at the table. And I'd be remiss, you know, to not acknowledge that lawsuits slow things down. But I do think that uh, we're seeing some of this change. You know, you had a great guest on from Australia uh, a couple months ago that uh, spoke about some of the, the new ideas around community engagement and how uh, when you're, you know, working up front, uh, working through disagreements, trying to engage with impacted community members and chart a path forward up front, rather than just dictating projects top down or forcing them on communities who don't want them or receive any benefits from them and and uh, expecting them to just go along, that you can actually get things done more quickly, not less. That being said, you know, I did have an opportunity af after the bill. I was flattered to see some of the commentary out there, and I actually think it's very helpful to have the discussion. I, I saw uh, one piece by uh, Professor Elmendorf from, I believe he's from UC Davis, and he had some good ideas to, to improve the bill. And, you know, he said the law needs to distinguish between projects that present serious demonstrable health risks and projects that may offend someone's aesthetic sensibilities or trigger unwarranted fears but pose no real risk of injury. I think that's a valid point. I think that's a valid point. But let's not cut our nose to spite our face. And, and let's remember uh, that, uh, you know, fossil fuel interests here are, are largely to blame. They're pumping money into these local fights. Uh, I thought that uh, your guest from Australia was spot on. Mm -hmm. We've got to turn the tide back in the other direction. Key way we do that is make sure that developers are doing what's necessary to build local support. And the last thing I'll say, there was a very good uh, survey that came out of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab of uh, large-scale wind and solar developers came out in January. And it said that community opposition is one of the top three leading causes of project cancellations. The other two are... Uh, local ordinances and grid interconnection, but it said that 75% of the developers surveyed believe that increased engagement resulted in fewer project cancellations. And a lot of them indicated that they expected earlier engagement would have been a good idea, even for the, the most recently canceled projects that they worked on. Uh, and even the Chamber of Commerce and others have said this, uh, you know, in, in hearings and other, other uh, public forums. So I think there is some common ground that we can find here to make sure that we do this the right way, that we build, 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 but that we do it the right way. Yeah, I, I guess the the whole premise of this of this section and this um, general field is 
this idea that doing more and better community engagement earlier in the process, even though it looks like more time consuming, you're actually going to save time net net by averting bigger fights down the road. That's the theory. But, you know, as Chris points out in the article you cite, that is mostly at this point a theory. <laughs> you know, at, at most, it is mostly at this point a nice idea. And there's a real dearth of, um, you know, scientific study of this, like double blind trials or things that might actually demonstrate that that's true. So at the very least, it's a, a gamble. <laughs> you know, it's a hope. I'll take his point. It is an untested theory, but what's absolutely certain is that the way energy infrastructure historically has been built has completely undermined environmental justice communities and their ability to participate in the decision-making process effectively. And if uh, people are comfortable with that as we move forward, uh, that's you know simply not something that, uh, that I think is uh, in line with my values. I don't think it's in line with the vast majority of those communities. And, and look, a lot of them are very skeptical because they've been burned by the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. Simply, you know, they, they uh, look at rural communities and you've got new energy companies showing up saying they're going to extract benefits from their land. And, you know, you've got folks all over this country uh, that have uh, experienced increased rates of adverse health effects, asthma, cancer, you name it. Uh, and, and so I get it. I get the skepticism. But what we know is that clean energy projects are less harmful to the environment. They're less harmful to public health uh, than fossil uh, projects. And not to mention the job creation potential uh, mm-hmm. for these communities that I, I think can help bolster rural economies. So I, I think a lot of upfront discussion is important. It's essential for all these projects. And, and uh, the absolute certainty is that we cannot keep doing things the way we've been doing and expect a different result. And that means that environmental justice communities uh, get the shaft. Can I just add a couple numbers here also that I think, you know, there's a, I don't want to put words in Mike's mouth, but I I think we're both rabid yimbiers with a Y. (laughs) Um, But I, I think we need to be careful not to assume that things that people are familiar with in their everyday life with respect to housing or how hard it is to rezone a shopping mall into you know, affordable infra- housing, whatever else, applies in the energy space. Because over the last decade, you have to explain to me how it is that somehow community engagement is making it harder to build fossil assets when we've seen U.S. gas production go up by 70%, U.S. demand go up by 30%, and exports go up by 500%. We have become a, almost 25% of the gas we now produce in the U.S. is for export, and the facilities that are already permitted are going to double that again. So it's not obvious that somehow these gosh-darned environmental justice communities are frustrating our ability to build dirty gas assets. On the other hand... There's 2,000 gigawatts of generation stuck in interconnect KUs that can't get through right now, of which one gigawatt is coal, 85 gigawatts are gas, and all of the rest are clean energy projects. So to argue that, you know, the problem is that we have too much local community engagement when the practical outcome in the energy space is that we've made it very easy to build dirty things and very hard to build clean things. <laughs> I'm not sure that really washes, right? And meanwhile, you know, the single best thing we could do for that community that's sitting there next to a coal plant is shut down the coal plant and give them cheaper, cleaner energy that can pipe in from somewhere else, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think what everybody would like is a process that allows good faith objections to be heard and addressed Mm -hmm. in a fair way, but that does not empower and enable bad faith objections to grind everything to a halt. And it just turns out, I think, um, you know, just to give legislators a bit of a break on this, is it's not obvious how to write into law (laughs) a process that distinguishes good faith from bad faith objections, right? I don't know how to legislate good behavior, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I remember, I remember Jamie Raskin telling me when we were talking about all the Electoral Reform Act, that he said, you know, at the end of the day, a constitutional democracy is based on the good faith of human beings all the way down. 
you can write whatever law you want, but the law is going to be carried out by an individual who's going to decide which laws to prosecute, which ones not to prosecute, how to enforce, how to interpret, and you do your best with who you have, but you try to get the intent right in the bill, and then you're going to have fallible mortals in interpreting these laws. Yeah, well, let me ask about some specifics then. So one of the things that it would do is expand the definition of environmental effects in NEPA to include economic and social effects. And, you know, to Chris's eye, and I think somewhat to mine, this looks to me like an invitation for more... more people with more grievances to enter the process. Like it's, it's at least environmental effects to some extent can be measured and quantified. But once you get into like social effects, then you're on very fuzzy ground and almost anyone can speak up. And, and one of the things I think about, you know, to touch on our, our theme is it's fine if we imagine this as a process of negotiation between good faith developers and good faith environmental justice communities, um, yep. f- figuring out a good faith response. But, you know, again, what if, um, you know, Trump takes over and this becomes just a, a an excuse for local communities to block any clean energy infrastructure? Like it seems to give a, a lot broader ambit to objectors in a way that is inevitably going to draw more objections. Do you not agree? So, David, I I think that is a valid concern, and I think it is really important, uh, back to your earlier point about uh, Trump-proofing the bill, I (laughs) I think that uh, uh, we do appreciate the help from interested parties to help us do that. I think after uh, seeing how the Trump administration acted Previously, I think we have a far better understanding of the playbook, and I think we have to make sure that the ideas that we're promoting here can't be weaponized. And I think our teams are doing what they can to go through the bill with a fine-tooth comb to think through all the eventualities that might occur. But I I absolutely think uh, we we need and welcome the help to make sure we don't miss anything. It's too important to leave up to chance. Uh, But I, I, I do, you know, think big picture here, there is a characterization uh, that somehow these provisions would be weaponized to subsidize objections to clean energy projects. And I, I don't see that to be the case. I, I think a lot of the communities that have long shouldered uh, pollution, the cancer, the asthma, all the other problems with fossil fuels are also exactly the communities who are under-resourced. They don't have recourse to deal with energy projects writ large. And at the same time, I think our teams have heard from developers, renewable energy project developers, about how it would actually be helpful for community groups to have some funding so that they could engage more effectively instead of just throwing up roadblocks. Right, right. Let's talk about that part, because that's one of the parts that was the kind of, um, you know, made a lot of heads blow off is, is there's actually <laughs> a provision in here that would give federal money to local government and civic groups and tribes Yep. In order for them to intervene in NEPA cases. And to a lot of people, that just seemed like, well, not only are you inviting more objection and more process, but you're literally funding more objection and more process. And this, I think, is a real schism of understanding between the build, build, build crowd mm-hmm. and the environmental justice crowd. How do you, how do you think about inter- intervener compensation is the term of art for this? Yeah, look, I, I think that uh, we have to have a dialogue on this. And, and again, remember that things as they are today are not working for environmental justice communities. Uh, by and large, the, the history of uh, burdens have been disproportionately shouldered by those with the fewest resources. And I think uh, you talked about tribal governments. That's a great example of uh, folks that uh, have a legal obligation, but lack the capacity to engage at the level of detail necessary with these mega projects. And look, this is a competitive grant program. It can go to states, it can go to local governments, it can go to tribes, it can go to nonprofits. And enhancing community engagement opportunities, as the bill defines it, is only one eligible use case for these grants. They can also Mm. be used for increasing capacities to run the analysis needed by local or state government. Uh, They can be used to identify zones for renewable development. Uh, They can be used to facilitate the siting of renewable energy infrastructure or or for training or hiring 
uh, more personnel to, to facilitate these objectives. But uh, I will tell you that I think anybody who's been involved at all with any sort of energy project development in California can attest to uh, intervener compensation being a positive thing. Uh, these are extraordinarily complex and difficult entities to navigate. And I think it's a major financial burden for the public to engage in proceedings. So uh, I think we need public participation. And I think uh, that uh, as part of this work to support public engagement and in order to provide communities on equal footing with uh, well-resourced uh, industry stakeholders, intervener compensation can help achieve that. It's also important to note here that it is not a level playing field right now. Yeah. Particularly if you're a rate-regulated utility, your costs of intervening are paid by your customers. I know, you, I you know. You have essentially, un and, and frankly, so are your political donations. Yep. Are, are under, you know, so you can get a friendly you know, utility commissioner appointed to oversee the case, and you can then pay. <laughs> and then meanwhile, you've got a local community saying, well, you know, can I get a few bucks? And people are saying, well, you're, you're not really very deserving, are you? I'm not sure you're as sophisticated as the people who are at the table. And that's, that's not to say that, you know, yes, you have to have some checks on this. You can't just, can't just be like an open pot of money for anybody who comes in and gets it. But this is about leveling the playing field, not tipping it to fill it full of people. I mean, the average community that doesn't want a project developed has other things they'd like to do with their time than go down to the local, <laughs> fly to D.C. for a fur carrying. And not, notwithstanding the, the thoughtful Atlantic piece that we uh, mentioned before, the people that don't like this bill are the fossil fuel industry. And they don't like it because, frankly, they're the ones benefiting from the status quo. And for me, that's the biggest tell of all. Yeah, and, and I will say as a bit of a FERC uh, watcher over the years, this issue of, you know, FERC will, will open a proceeding to make a decision and it takes comment from anyone and everyone, but actually like doing the research and finding someone to assemble a professional looking comment to make your opinion known to FERC is not cheap. It's not easy. And so... There has been, this has, as Sean says, it has sort of distorted FERC proceedings in that the sort of wealthy incumbents can afford to intervene their heads off. And, you know, it just, and it's not that easy for the affected groups. So this idea of FERC intervener compensation has been around for a long time before this current argument about, about, about build, build, build and all this, like the, the, the need for FERC to be able to hear from a wider array of voices, I think is, has been around a while and is, has somewhat got swept up in this, in this recent argument unjustly. So let's talk about our vision for the future here. So we've laid down a marker, like we want to, um, you know, centralize authority over transmission with FERC. We want FERC to have some backstop authority. We want FERC to force utilities to do things that utilities should have been doing all along to make them actually uh, do those things, get a lot more transmission going. And ideally, the vision, I think, is all these new projects that we're build, build, building will begin early on with community engagement, settle those issues, figure out where to put things, figure out how to compensate communities for the impacts and make that whole process smoother, I think is the, is the aspiration, is the idea. Whether the details in here would necessarily do that or not, I think, as you say, is open to negotiation. This is going to be a long process. But um, what's next you're you know you talked about being prepared for when the opportunity arises does that just mean waiting for some bright future day when the filibuster is gone <laughs> and dims have congress or are there smaller bits and pieces of opportunity that might come before then like what do you sort of envision happening to this bill now that is on paper and out there sean you want to start yeah i'll make just sort of a uh a hopeful and a, and a practical point. You know, the hopeful is we, we find a vehicle. I mean, Congress has a weird way of all of a sudden you've got a, an opportunity and big things happen and you don't, you don't get to plan that room unless the big thing is there and has the support. And so Mike and I continue to push to get the 
you know, all the various stakeholders involved and engaged to support this and, and build that support. And you Can, know, and I, can they, I ask, you know, that we, yeah. we talked before about the mythical Republicans that might someday step up and do something good. Um, as you say, there are a number of Republican states, red states, that would very tangibly and directly benefit from this uh, yeah. from yeah. this bill in, in, in ways that are that you can demonstrate. You know, it's not complicated. It's not a complicated argument. You know, Iowa, you, you mentioned. Is that incentive? <laughs> I mean, I don't want us to be fooling ourselves like Manchin here, but like, is that you do you think that incentive is enough <laughs> to draw a few of them out of the bunker? On this, I, you know, I, look, it, it depends on the moment. I mean, last time I checked, every state benefits from cheaper insulin, but that was a very partisan vote. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that, you know, in general, if you do good policy, good politics sometimes follows. The reverse is never true, right? <laughs> so let's so let's get the policy right and do it. But but I, I do want to make also just the, the somewhat more practical point of. This bill is is not just Mike and I's work. There's a ton of our colleagues who you know had put the hard work in before and got cobbled in here, and 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 there's a lot of pieces that could be pulled out, you know, in standalone vehicles as they go through. I feel bad we didn't mention offshore wind. There's a whole there's a whole yeah. title in here about inducing more offshore wind. Yeah, which was a lot of stuff that 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 a lot of our colleagues had done that hard work before, and so we'll continue. Yeah, to find yeah, those. yeah. It came from a different bill. But, but the other piece that's just sort of a practical reality is I've had a number of conversations with current and past FERC commissioners on this bill, going through to say, okay, which of these pieces are expansions of FERC's current jurisdiction? Versus which ones of these are simply giving FERC an affirmative obligation to do something that they already have the authority to do. Right. And the vast majority of this bill is in that latter camp. And so we know this isn't just about whether Mike and I's bill, you know, gets passed and we finally get our faces chiseled on Mount Rushmore as we deserve. <laughs> but, but how are we going to actually solve the climate crisis if we know we can't do it unless we build this stuff faster? And all I really have to assume, even in like a completely dysfunctional Congress, is a president who gives a shit <laughs> and a fully staffed FERC that says we give a shit too and we're going to do everything in our power to bring these bills. And like having, having thought through it at the outside groups, that's an agenda that's there. And I, you know, and I, I think, I don't want to over-celebrate, but I think a, a lot of these ideas, if we still had a Chairman Glick running a, a five-member FERC, yes. I think a lot of these things might have been come, come through, right? And so maybe we'll have something like that again in the future. <laughs> you know, and what I do know is that next term, there will be a different head of Senate DNR. Yeah, Man <laughs> Ma Manchin's right. not running again, right. and Biden is, so we could have a Biden, no yeah, Manchin, the, staffed <laughs> FERC yeah, situation. The, the, the political fear of, you know, aspiring FERC commissioners <laughs> Maybe that changes, right? You know, let me add one more thing. I, I think there are a lot of ideas in here that Republicans should be perfectly fine with. In fact, I think they should enthusiastically support a lot of these ideas. But I see too many of our colleagues just sort of have this knee-jerk response of opposing transmission policy just because Democrats are in favor of it. And <laughs> this, this is a fairly new thing. So transmission used to be bipartisan. 2005 Energy Policy Act, you, you had Congress grapple with transmission in a pretty significant way. You had a Republican president, Republican Senate, Republican well, House. Well, one of the best states for transmission is Texas. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with one of my Republican colleagues. I think, Sean, you were there. And this gentleman, I won't name names, but uh, he said, the Inflation Reduction Act, you, you've had all these announcements of all these projects, and two-thirds of the projects are going into Republican districts. How did you guys pull that off? And I said, <laughs> we, we didn't do anything. We, we just, you know, wrote what we thought uh, was a good bill. And, and uh, a lot of folks weighed in. And, and ultimately, the market determines where those jobs will be created. And I think the key here is getting over the mental block that transmission lines are the enemy. Yeah. They are not the enemy. And it's just getting over that, you know, knee-jerk response and just you know, encouraging our colleagues to exercise their own independent judgment and break free from whatever the fossil fuel industry is telling them to think. And that's not easy, but we've got to keep at it. Well, if we watch the uh, immigration brew oh, uh, going down right now, 
not a ton of independent uh, judgment <laughs> being being exercised anywhere. Yeah, but who knows? It's terrible, and I I'm honestly optimistic, David, that our constituents at the end of the day expect more than just a bunch of nonsense and partisanship, and and it is so frustrating. You know, anytime that Sean and I are in the Capitol, uh, we walk out on the front steps after a vote series and you've got a horde of reporters that would love nothing more for us to tear each other to shreds. And as long as that's the case, as long as, you know, performance uh, supersedes actually getting things done, uh, then we're going to run into this problem. But I, I hope that people are getting sick and tired of it. I know my constituents are. The tragedy, Mike, is that if I elbowed you in the kidneys on the way out of the house, we'd, we'd get a lot more time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you guys we'll need to later. think, we'll talk how later. can we have a fake fight and then throw good transmission ideas into the fake fight? Don't give us any ideas, Dave. <laughs> we can, we, we can uh, Mike, we'll get Nancy Mace on the floor. She can fill us in on exactly how to do that. Oh, that could go oh, wrong man. in all kinds of ways. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and walking through this. Uh, really, uh, lots of great stuff in this bill. And uh, I hope it uh, comes to something uh, in the future. But uh, either way, thanks for coming on and walking us through it. Thanks so much for having us, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.